This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump is rushing to leave his final mark on environmental policy before he leaves office. In a last-minute push, the Trump administration is racing to issue permits, finalize major environmental regulations, and even sell the rights to drill for oil and gas in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. 1.6 million acres of pristine wilderness for polar bears, caribou, migratory birds, and other animals. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor of environmental law at the Vermont Law School. Pat, tell us about the Trump administration plan to sell leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So this is the Arctic Plain, which has been called the Serengeti of America because of its incredible diversity of wildlife. You're talking polar bears and caribou and musk ox and, you know, some iconic wildlife species. It's also the home of the Gwich'in people who hold this area in, in basically with spiritual values. So it's a 1.6 million acre area, and it's long been thought to hold a lot of oil and gas, although some of the very preliminary test wells they've drilled there have not been that promising. So we really don't know how much recoverable oil and gas there is. It's It's incredibly remote. It's one of the most remote areas of the United States up in the Arctic. And it's very difficult to to get in there. You have to build a whole network of roads and and all the support, you know, that you need for that. It's very, very expensive uh, for exploration and production. So there there are lots of obstacles, uh, both legal and uh, natural, uh, to actually drilling uh, in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I think I think we're a long way from from that actually happening. But certainly the Trump administration is doing absolutely everything it can in a rush towards the end of its term to get these leases out the door. And uh, and then we'll see what happens. Well, So they're in a really tight timeline to get this done before Biden comes into office. Normally it takes, even after they get the, the bids, it takes the Bureau of Land Management months, doesn't it, to review them and decide what to sell? Yes, this is a multi-month process at best. You know, there was an environmental impact statement that was done that opened up the entire coastal plain. That was a surprise. You know, there was some thought that the administration might not open the whole thing, all 1.6 million acres up to leasing. Maybe they'd try to identify areas where they thought the recoverable oil was the easiest to get to or the richest deposits or whatever. But they didn't. They opened the whole thing up. So what happened then, the next step in the process is what they call a call for nomination. So they put out a call to the oil industry and they say, which tracks within this vast area are you most interested in bidding on? So that's what's happened Tuesday, the call for nominations. Then usually months go by before you get the response to that. They've set a deadline of, get this, January 17, three days before inauguration for the industry to indicate which tracks are they interested in. And then, as you say, once they find out, you know, the industry's interest, then there's usually a several month period of analyzing what industry has said, piecing together leasable tracks of land. And then they put out the call for bids on the specific tracks to be leased. And, And yes, that usually takes several months. And of course, 
throughout this long process, normally there's opportunities for the public to weigh in under the, the rules that the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, follows in traditional or in historic cases. In this situation, there's going to be no opportunity for that, no time for the Bureau of Land Management to actually analyze which of these areas of interest make sense to offer for leases. And everything's being rushed, but the thing is, it can't all be completed before the Biden administration takes office. So the Biden administration will have the opportunity to do something to deal with these leases. Under that timeline, the Bureau of Land Management won't have enough time to finalize the leases before Biden is inaugurated. So can the Biden administration just come in and tell the Bureau of Land Management, cancel those leases? I think they can. I think they have the power. A couple of ways to do it, because they do have to observe, you know, proper process and legalities. But because the lawsuits challenging the legitimacy of the environmental impact statement have yet to be decided, the Biden administration could confess error. It could go into court and say, we agree with the critics who say that the environmental statement did not adequately analyze the impact. Remember, this is one of the richest wildlife areas on the continent with lots of endangered species, including the polar bear. So the challenge to the leasing process itself would give the Biden administration chance to say, we think the predicate, the basis for this leasing program is wrong. It's illegal. And we're going to redo it. In addition to that, the president does have the authority not to issue leases, not to award the bid. And in the worst possible case, where the Trump administration was somehow able to actually sell leases, there are some provisions in these leases that allow for them to be revoked. I don't know exactly what the terms are going to be for these leases, but that will be something the Biden administration can look at. Are there ways in which the leases themselves can be revoked? In the final analysis, though, if an oil company actually buys one of these leases, the Biden administration could buy it back. There's a lot of question about whether any of the oil and gas companies are actually going to bid on these leases, given all the uncertainty, given the legal challenges, U.S. banks have already said they're not going to lend to the oil companies to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So there are so many unknowns around this leasing that I don't think it's actually going to happen. And Pat, what about the lawsuits? Who's suing to stop this? It's the Gwich'in people, the Inuit people who occupy this part of of the Arctic, um, as well as Trustees for Alaska, which is the leading conservation group uh, in Alaska, and I'm sure others, but those are the two main parties that are challenging it. And, you know, this does give the Biden administration the chance to say to the court, um, we agree uh, with the the, uh, assertions that this process has been flawed. And, And the more that it's rushed, by the Trump administration at the very end of its term, not following proper procedure, varying from what normally was uh, done. All of those reasons are going to be used, I think, to justify the Biden administration pulling all of this back. And the president-elect has stated on the record many times that he does not believe that the, the refuge should be drilled. He took that same position when he was in the Senate. You know, this this area has been the subject of controversy for as long as I can remember, 40 years or more. So there's a long history here 
Uh, this area being sort of sacrosanct and should be the, sort of the last place on Earth that you'd be drilling, given the fact that climate science is telling us we have to stop drilling and producing all this fossil fuel, you would think this would be one of those areas that would be the very last. Let's turn to California. California has sued Trump and the federal agencies 106 times over the past four years, more than any other state. And the bulk of those, 57, have focused on environmental issues. Tell us about some of the biggest issues that California has been fighting over. Wow, yeah. Almost every major issue you can think of, the Clean Air Act. Uh, California obviously has challenged the rollback of the fuel economy standards because California traditionally has enjoyed special status uh, as the one state that can set more stringent fuel economy standards and tailpipe emission standards than any state. And, of course, the Trump administration has revoked California's authority to do that in addition to rolling back the standards that the Obama administration adopted. So fuel economy is one. The clean power plan that that Obama adopted uh, regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, that's another case that California is leading the charge on uh, and and arguing that the Trump administration unlawfully repealed the clean power plan and substituted a very weak, almost uh, ridiculous, frankly, uh, plan called the ACE rule, the, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which doesn't do anything for greenhouse gas emissions. Their target is basically a rounding error um, in the calculation of emission reduction, something like less than 1% uh, maybe uh, could be achieved. Uh, but California has also challenged uh, the Trump administration's border wall. Uh, that That's a case that's pending in the United States Supreme Court now because Trump uh, reprogrammed uh, money from the Department of Defense budget uh, to build his wall, and, and the lower courts uh, uh, said that was illegal. Uh, California has challenged the rollback of the Clean Water Act, challenged the rollback of the methane rule regulating methane emissions, both those that are uh, on federal lands where oil and gas development flares the methane when they're after the oil they burn off the methane because it's not valuable enough to recover. California's challenged that. You could go right down the line. The Endangered Species Act. Uh, the Trump administration rolled back the rules implementing the ESA, and California has challenged that. So, like you said, over 100 lawsuits. And because California has a very strong attorney general's office, after all, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, you know outstanding people come out of that office. Um, they, they have the legal muscle uh, to handle all these cases, and they have a pretty good track record against the Trump administration in winning them. The California AG's office said it's reviewing the lawsuits now, and it will brief the White House about the cases still pending and how they can be resolved. Explain why they wouldn't just drop all the lawsuits. Well, because this is an opportunity for the Biden administration to agree with some of the reasons why the Trump rules should be sent back, uh, remanded, as we call it, uh, to be reconsidered and uh, obviously repealed and replaced. So, you know, what you're seeing is a flip the script kind of situation. When Trump came in, he repealed and replaced all of the Obama rules. Now, when Biden 
comes in, he's going to do a similar thing with the Trump rules. But he's got to do it in compliance with the law. You know, the Trump uh, uh, track record in court was terrible. I mean, they lost almost 90 percent of the cases where they were challenged. Biden doesn't want to repeat that. So he wants to keep some of these lawsuits in place so that he can go into court and say, Your Honor, these are the areas where the Trump rule really did violate the law or certainly where there are flaws in the way they went about analyzing the rules. And here are the reasons why we want to correct those errors and come up with a new rule. That's a better way, I think, legally to proceed than just sweeping all of the rules out, you know, with one stroke. Um, and the, the lawsuits give him, Biden, I mean, the opportunity to do that in a more logical, measured way that I think Biden's going to want to follow. So we've talked before about the rules and how long it takes to get them in place, the different stages that are needed, the public hearings that a lot of times the Trump administration just decided not to comply with. So how long could it take Biden to repeal and replace these rules and regulations? Yeah, it it is going to take more time than people uh, would want to hear. But the truth is that these rulemakings take a year to two and sometimes longer than that. And even though I think Biden's going to have a very talented team day one, I mean, I I see the names on the transition teams. They're names I recognize. You know, these are people who know their agencies, know the law, know the process, know Washington, and know how to get things done. Even with all that, even with a crack team uh, on the job right away, uh, it's still going to take months. And in, in a, in some of the bigger rules, like what to do with power plants under the Clean Air Act and greenhouse gases, you know, that's a two-year uh, proposition, I think. The clean water rule is very complicated. That one could take two years as well. Some of the other ones can be done very quickly, like restoring the boundaries to the national monuments, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. You know, that's something that Biden can do right away because that's within the power of the executive branch, the president's power uh, to do that with a stroke of a pen. Executive orders are very easy for him to reverse, but rules, no, those are going to take time. And because we have this really conservative six to three majority on the Supreme court, you know, you're going to have to ask yourself a question. If you're at EPA, is this a rule that I can get five votes? on the Supreme Court to uphold? I mean, I wouldn't have thought questions like that when I was at EPA would have ever come up. We would just simply do what we thought was right and legal. But we wouldn't be asking ourselves, oh my goodness, I wonder if this really conservative bench that's going to be reviewing our rules is going to agree with us that we have the authority to do it. So that's a big unknown that we haven't faced before. And the Biden administration is going to have to navigate that. Will the Biden administration have to basically clean house at the EPA after years of having a lobbyist in charge of the agency and the different people that he appointed? Well, it certainly will be at the top tier, and that would be the administrator, the deputy, the assistant administrators for air and water and so forth. So you're going to have to go probably three levels deep across the top of the agency to replace people. 
And then you're going to have to find the people that are burrowing in to the agency who were supporting what Trump was doing and make sure that they don't remain in positions of authority or influence. And then you're going to have to bring in a whole new tier of leadership into the agency, some of which are going to have trouble getting a, you know past the confirmation process with McConnell. And so there are going to be some interim appointments. Trump, of course, did that across the board. I'm sure Biden would prefer to have his nominations confirmed, but he may be facing a situation of stalemate in the Senate because the Democrats don't look like they're going to be able to either uh, gain at least a split in the Senate. The two Georgia races are obviously critically important. If both of those seats go to the Democrats, then it's a whole different ballgame. You know, then Kamala Harris can break any tie uh, if the Democrats and Republicans are split. But the betting is that that's probably not going to happen. The Democrats won't be in a position to push things through the Senate. And so filling these positions becomes yet another big challenge for the Biden administration. I think he's got the people to do it. And I think he'll use these interim appointments as much as he can. But there is a limit to how long you can go with interim appointments. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Pat. That's Pat Parento, a professor at Vermont Law School. While President Trump's campaign lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was claiming in a Pennsylvania federal court hearing that Democrats conspired to block Republican poll observers from monitoring ballot counts for fraud, the state Supreme Court dealt that argument a blow. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that Republican poll observers were not entitled to stand within a certain distance to observe the counting of ballots. The state high court ruling came down during a hearing before federal judge Matthew Brand on Pennsylvania's motion to dismiss the Trump campaign's federal lawsuit seeking to block certification of President-elect Joe Biden's projected victory in that state. Joining me is election law expert Richard Brafald, a professor at Columbia Law School. So a lawyer for one of the Pennsylvania counties said that the Pennsylvania lawsuit for some reason has become a lifeline to the Trump campaign. Are these the only lawsuits that are moving forward? Have all the other lawsuits basically gone away slowly? There was something pending in Nevada. In Michigan, it has moved into the, it has turned into the, the battle of the canvassing board. Wisconsin, I guess, there may or may not be the recount. Currently, the state has given the uh, Trump campaign like a $7.9 million bill if they want to do a recount. Georgia, again, they're in the process of doing their recount. I did read that something was filed in Nevada recently. But you may be right that Pennsylvania is probably where the action is right now. I think there have been more lawsuits filed in Pennsylvania as well. Is it because Pennsylvania is a battleground state, it's so important that Trump has to win it, or is it because of the Pennsylvania rules and regulations that... I'm not sure. I mean, um, even if uh, Trump prevails in Pennsylvania, which seems highly doubtful, that would not be enough to give him the election. Assuming that all the states turn out the way they seem to be, that would still leave uh, Biden with 286 electoral votes. That would be enough to win. I think where they're hoping is to find more either some more discrepancies in the absentee balloting procedure, whether it's sending them out, the corrections or the counting or the observations. I just think that they seem to have piled more on that in Pennsylvania. It could be because Georgia is run by a Republican, although he's being attacked. They may be less able to challenge the administration of the electoral system in Georgia. 
And in Arizona, there were a lot of Republicans in power there. There was a sense that the Pennsylvania Secretary of State and the Pennsylvania courts had been more uh, expansive in their treatment of absentee ballots than the courts or administrators in the other states were. So I think maybe they're hoping to just find more, more, I think they're making more claims of inconsistent treatment or of practices that departed from the rules. Rudy Giuliani, in the oral arguments yesterday, described this vast but vague Democratic conspiracy to steal the election, saying at one point that one and a half million valid ballots would have to be thrown out. But he admitted that the campaign isn't pleading voter fraud, even though he argued that there is voter fraud. So what is the argument in that case, in the federal case in Pennsylvania? As I understand it, the argument is simply that for things like the fact that the observers were not allowed to be as close to the ballot counting as they as they wanted uh, to be, and for things like giving voters the opportunity to correct, you know, to fix flaws like problems with their signatures, that it was just sufficiently irregular that there might have been fraud. So they can't prove it, but it's the, the fact of uh, irregularity or the some kind of gap between ideal procedure and the procedures that were that were actually provided. Either that that alone is enough to strike down the election, or that that would have permitted fraud, although they don't have any proof of fraud, and that that should be enough. I mean, it's either the one or the other, or maybe the the two blend in together. That because there were imperfections in the administration of the election, that's enough. Now, how does this? play in with the ruling yesterday by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. As you mentioned, the Trump campaign has argued that Republican observers were kept too far away to be able to properly monitor the ballot processing, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled they're not entitled to be any specific distance away. Well, that's certainly going to be a problem for them, but I actually thought even more important in that Pennsylvania decision was not the majority opinion, but the dissent. The dissent written by the Chief Justice, who I think had also been dissenting in the Pennsylvania court's more expansive permissions with respect to absentee balloting. The Chief Justice said, well, maybe he would have gone along with the lower court, which would have said that maybe they should have been allowed to come closer. But the final sentence or two of the Chief Justice, and I'm reading it right now, is I note that given the enormous scale of canvassing activities and the historical balkanization associated with the administration of the election franchise at the county and district levels, there have been and always will be some localized irregularities. But short of demonstrated fraud, the notion that presumptively valid ballots cast by the Pennsylvania electorate would be disregarded based on isolated procedural irregularities that have been redressed is misguided. So this was the dissenter who thought maybe there was something to the argument that they should have been allowed to be closer. But even the dissenter, who kind of agreed with them, on the point that they should have been allowed to be closer, is saying that that's not a basis for throwing out any ballot. Although they lost on the law, even more powerful is the dissent, who thinks that it's basically this is not a basis for throwing out ballots. I've been talking to election law expert Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. It seems that every time the Trump campaign lawsuits have actually gotten into court, that even when they claim to have evidence of affidavits, that there is a problem with the evidence. There really hasn't been a case so far that I can recall, except for the lower court in Pennsylvania about the election observers, which was just overturned. 
there really hasn't been a case where they said, here's the fraud, here's what happened, and the court said, yes, you're right, that's enough evidence. Right. That, that has not happened. I don't think any court has actually found fraud under any circumstances. The most that has been found has been, in effect, a failure by some election administrators to comply 100% with the proper procedures. And as the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, those kinds of, of minor irregularities happen all the time, and it's never been a basis for throwing out ballots. The judge hasn't ruled yet in the federal case, although he seemed to indicate by his comments that he didn't find much merit in the argument. He said how the expansion of the right to vote burdens anyone is a mystery. But still, Giuliani is looking to file a second amended complaint, and one wonders what new allegations he can come up with. In some ways, their whole theory is that this is not an absolutely 100% perfect election. And that given the fact that some minor mistakes might have happened somewhere, or there might have been some differences in local procedure between one county and another, that's enough to throw the whole election out. And that's just never been the law. What's your take on the Georgia election results audit? It's expected to be finished by today. And they did find some problems, but the change in votes was, you know, seven, 800 in Trump's favor. Right. Well, I mean, I think it, it shows that the Georgia result is probably right. I mean, I think the main thing that happened is they discovered that one county had failed to include some votes. I think the votes that were actually counted before the, the audit turned out to be almost 100% identical. So the only, I mean, in, some, in many of the Georgia counties, it was 100% identical. And in the ones it wasn't, it was the discrepancies were very minor. What they did discover, I think, is in one or two places. Some votes had not been counted at all. They were not in the final count. That's the major thing that changed the overall result by maybe around 1,000 votes, from about 14,000 to 13,000 Biden margin. But now they've counted all the votes. And I think it really proved that their initial count was of the votes that were counted was more than 99.9% accurate. Now, I think that this, this was not the actual recount that the state law entitles the loser to. This was something extra added by the Republican Secretary of State. But I, this was a hand recount. I think the, they might be, the Trump campaign might be entitled to a machine recount, but it's, it's highly unlikely that would, that would change more than a, a tiny, tiny number of votes, if any. Rich, do you remember another state official being subjected to the kind of pressure that the Georgia Secretary, the Republican Georgia Secretary of State has been subjected to even a call from Lindsey Graham, which he claims Graham was asking about discounting, throwing out some ballots, and there was another person on that call, though Graham has denied it. Right, I mean, right, I've never heard anything where the message is find something so you can throw this out versus, you know, give it as careful a count as you can, um, you know, and enforce the law. But this this was beyond enforce the law. This was find something so that you can throw votes out. And that, I think, is unheard of. At least in, in, you know, in anybody who purports to be following the law and trying to actually run an honest election as opposed to undoing an election. So now once the states have certified the vote tallies, will these election law challenges be moot? Once they're certified, yeah. I mean, I guess they can try and and enjoying the certification. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's completely moot in the sense that they might be challenging the results and, you know, and basically saying, okay, now that we have a certified result, 
we're going to challenge that. That's a possibility. The burden is even heavier to overturn that, uh, to overturn a certified result. But, I mean, in theory, there's always the possibility that somebody could once again prove fraud or some something seriously wrong with the with that it's highly unlikely uh i mean even more highly unlikely than than blocking the certification that means to me that on december 13th we may have some peace from these lawsuits because i believe that michigan is the last state to certify and Uh its date is december 13th right i mean certainly once the electoral votes are counted or cast I should say, once the electoral votes are cast, which I think is December 13th, I don't think there's room for anything more. Um, at that point, the electors have voted. So I think all that they're trying to do is prevent the certifications that would result in the selecting of the electors. I don't think there's anything they can do once the electors have actually voted. Is there anything that Biden can do to force the transition? I don't think so. I don't think there's anything they can do. Maybe after the electors have voted. Um, I mean, I've never seen this. Of course, this has never happened before. I mean, um, at least not in, in modern time. I mean, who knows what it was like in the 19th century, but certainly in the modern era, there's no nothing like a president kind of refusing, absolutely refusing to, to, do, to, to, to make a transition to his successor. Um, I mean, it's conceivable. I mean, I guess the, the Trump people have, are technically accurate in that there is no president elect until the electors have voted. Um, so maybe they could do something after, after the electors have voted. But it's not clear to me that they can compel anything uh, until then. Finally, Giuliani said in a Fox Business Network interview yesterday that he's looking for a vehicle that will take a case to the Supreme Court. Do you see any vehicle right now? I don't. I don't. They so far have not really come up with any compelling federal arguments. I mean, mostly their arguments are really state arguments about, you know, did they, was, was state law complied with? And those have largely sailed. These are the kinds of disputes that are normally resolved in state court. And uh, I just don't see it. Thanks, Rich. That's Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. President Trump has resumed with one of his most successful priorities as president, the appointment of federal judges to make the judiciary more conservative. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is poised to continue pushing the confirmations to the lifetime appointments through until Trump's term is over. The pair have confirmed more than 220 lifetime judicial appointees to the federal courts, including three Supreme Court justices. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond School of Law. Carl, so far, have any judges been confirmed during the lame duck session? Yes, they have. Two were confirmed last week for the district bench, and this week five are scheduled. Uh, One was just confirmed this morning. And the other four will be confirmed this week, a second one today, and then the others by Thursday. And so the seven will have been confirmed in the lame duck so far for the district courts. Are these openings that have been in place for a while, did they just come up? Most of them have existed for some time. And, of course, if someone's confirmed this week, it means they've been through the process. They've been nominated and had committee hearings 
approval votes in the committee and then uh, up for debate and then a vote on the floor. So they are not new, uh, virtually all of them, though there are a few that are. And so, uh, for example, there is a uh, circuit vacancy that was just created when Juan Toriello died, who served on the first circuit, and someone was just recently nominated for that position after the election. Let's concentrate on the district court nominations for a moment. Are these going through on party line votes, as we've seen with most of the circuit court nominations, or are these different? Well, some are. For example, the one this morning uh, nominee for the Southern District of Mississippi was relatively close, 53 to 43. Uh, And so uh, we may see that with some of these nominees. Uh, especially if there's some controversy. And there's also the feeling, I think, among some Democrats that uh, Mitch McConnell is jamming through people uh, at the last minute after the voters have spoken uh, in terms of who they want to be nominating judges. Has this happened before? Yes. Um, You know, in recent administrations at the end of Uh, Obama's time, the Senate, when McConnell was in the majority, uh, Republican Senate confirmed no one after July 6th. So that gives you a sense of the discrepancy between then and now. On the other hand, at the end of Bush in 2007-2008, Democrats were in the majority and they confirmed 58 district judges and 10 circuit judges. Uh, as opposed to the Republican majority in 2015-16 confirmed only two circuit judges and 18 district judges. And so uh, there have been disparities depending on who's in the White House and who is in the control of the Senate. Just explain once again the difference between these district court judges who are sort of like the trial judges in the federal system and what we normally concentrate on, which is the circuit court judges? Well, um, this administration, the Trump administration, has focused like a laser on the appeals courts. And so there are only three vacancies now, and there were no vacancies for a short period, uh, which is the fewest since Ronald Reagan was president, uh, but has neglected to some extent the district vacancies and emergency vacancies. But the difference is at the appellate level, uh, the rulings cover all of the states in a particular circuit uh, as opposed to a district judge who really uh, only can't even bind people in the judge's own courthouse. And so essentially the appellate judges make more policy And 99% of cases, uh, the court of last resort is the appellate court that decides because the Supreme Court hears so few cases. And so that's why the administration has tried to keep all of those seats filled and may fill all three vacancies now. Uh, I think tomorrow we'll have Justice Amy Coney Barrett's replacement, uh, who's been nominated, before judiciary for a hearing, and then the idea is to confirm him to her Seventh Circuit vacancy. What do we know about Thomas Kirsch, who has been nominated to fill 
Coney Barrett's seat? He is presently the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana and has experience in private practice with Winston Strawn, I believe a Chicago firm, and uh, has served in and out of the Justice Department, U.S. Attorney's Office in Northern District of Indiana in his career and I think is well-regarded, but he looks like a number of other nominees of President Trump, I think. But we'll see. has strong support from the home state senators in Indiana. About the latest Trump nominations to the courts. So tell us about Judge Raul Arias Marksquak, who was nominated to fill the vacancy on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And he is a district judge whom Trump appointed to the District of Puerto Rico and has served for 18 months uh, in that capacity. And so he's a nominee for the First Circuit, and I think they will try to move his nomination as well. There's a third vacancy on the Seventh Circuit. Judge Flom assumes senior status on November 30, and the Republicans may try to fill that vacancy as well. And so uh, I think it was a smart or astute choice on the part of the administration to try to elevate someone who was already on the district bench and someone from Puerto Rico, because there's a bit of a tradition there um, to have someone from uh, Puerto Rico on the First Circuit. Um, And so the administration has someone uh, they've already sent through the process, and uh, the Puerto Rico district judge was confirmed on a 96-3 to vote, um, and so had a very smooth uh, nomination confirmation process. Uh, And so I think the hope is that he would be uh, as smoothly confirmed uh, in this situation. Though, again, it's after the election when he was nominated and would be confirmed if that happens. Is there enough time to get all the confirmations for the Seventh Circuit done? Well, maybe. I think the one that's already been made and has the hearing tomorrow for Kirsch, I think that could be done. Um, because then he would just need a committee vote, which could happen in December, and then a final vote, which could happen in December. The others are more difficult. It depends on when the First Circuit nominee has a hearing, and then there's no nominee yet for Judge Blom's seat. Uh, So that could be tight because they only have a small number of working days after Thanksgiving when they come back, and then the Senate turns over, uh, I believe, on the 5th or so, of January. And so um, it's just not clear that there are enough, you know, legislative days to um, approve all three of those circuit judges. And then the questions also about district judges. There are five others who um, are on the floor and so have had hearings and committee votes. And those five could easily be confirmed in December, but there are 20 more who have been nominated by the president but not even had a hearing yet. And I think there's a big question mark as to those. We'll know, we don't know yet who's going to be on the hearing tomorrow. Besides Kirsch, it could be some district nominees, but that's not clear. And so it's not at all clear that any of those 20 would be able to get through the process if the hearings are not held till December. That's a very tight time frame, given what has to happen in that period. So 
look back and on the four years of judicial nominations and tell us what President Trump and Mitch McConnell have accomplished? Well, they've named three extremely conservative uh, and, and confirmed three extremely conservative Supreme Court justices, 53 so far and counting similar appellate court judges and 169 district judges after this week, uh, which is a relatively strong record, especially at the appellate level. So, for example, President Obama in two terms was able to confirm 55 appellate judges. So if only two more are confirmed, then President Trump would have matched that. And if he has all three confirmed, that would mean he named more in one term than Obama did in two. Since Mitch McConnell has filled and looks likely to fill every single opening, what are the prospects for Joe Biden to appoint judges? Well, there are some because, as I said, there are 22 vacancies at the district level where there are no nominees yet. So he's likely to inherit those. And then there's 20 more uh, who have been nominated for vacancies. They haven't had a hearing yet. So that would come to 42, even if everybody else were confirmed by McConnell. Um, And then there'll be uh, more people who assume senior status uh, and retire in the next year. So he may have a fair number of vacancies that he can fill, but mostly at the district level, not very many at the appellate level, unless judges presently sitting assume senior status. And there are a number of appellate judges who are eligible under the rule of are 65 and have 15 years of service. Uh, and so some of them may well assume senior status in 2021. 20, uh, so then Biden would, to put it in colloquial terms, take back the nominations of those who haven't been confirmed yet? They would expire when the new Senate comes in. And President Trump, of course, could renominate them in that period, right, between the new Senate coming in and Inauguration Day. But I don't think that much is going to happen in that period. The Senate is getting organized. Inauguration is being planned. The Senate may not even be in session much of, uh, of that early part of January. So that's probably not realistic uh, that much would happen by way of confirmation in that period of time. President Trump has been able to nominate and get confirmed some very conservative judges, as we've discussed. What will happen when a President Biden nominates a very liberal judge? Are they likely to get through if the Senate remains in Republican hands? Well, a lot depends on what happens in the two Georgia races uh, that will be decided on January 5th. Uh, If Democrats are able to win both of those, then they would have a Senate majority uh, because the tie-breaking vote would be the vice president. Uh, There is that possibility. if not, then McConnell, I think, would be the leader, and there would be a very thin majority uh, in the Senate. And I think it'll be a matter of negotiation between the White House and uh, McConnell. And Biden may, to some extent, have to moderate the type of people he chooses. 
I think he has a good relationship with Mitch McConnell and with many other senators with whom he served. And so he knows the process very well. He chaired the Judiciary Committee and was on it for three decades or more and has very good people around him to help with judicial selection. Cautiously optimistic that that will go smoothly. That's Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.